Hi, my name is Alan. I'm an anaesthetics trainee in North East London, and I'm also the new podcast lead for the Association Easterists Trainee Committee. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Coffee and a Gas podcast. I'm joined today by my colleague Layla. My name's Layla. I'm also a member of the trainee committee. I'm an anaesthetic trainee living in London, working in the east of England. I think my first action as podcast lead should be to apologise for the hiatus we've had in episodes whilst we've been transitioning. However, we have some very exciting guests planned and we're starting with a fantastic one this episode. Michael Rosen does not need much in a way of introduction. He is one of the most influential children's authors in British history. He served as children's laureate from 2007 to 2009 and has authored over 140 books, including one of the first books I've ever read, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. In March 2020, Michael was admitted to Whittington Hospital with COVID, with two admissions to intensive care. His experience and subsequent recovery is wonderfully documented in his book, Many Different Kinds of Love. He recently gave a keynote talk at the Association's annual congress in Belfast, and has today kindly agreed to appear on our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thanks for asking me, Alan. Thank you, and Leila. So for those listening who may not be aware of your experience, do you mind just briefly outlining the circumstances surrounding your admission? Yes, um, go all the way back to March 2020. Uh, We couldn't get tested, so it wasn't possible to know whether you actually had COVID or not. So my wife and I, we were making phone calls because I was not coughing very much, but I had an extreme temperature and found it quite difficult to breathe. So we were making phone calls to... Uh, the paramedics, and they were asking me to breathe over the phone um, and telling, asking me whether I was worse yesterday than I was today or vice versa. Um, and they were fairly confident that I didn't have COVID. It was a telephone diagnosis. But Emma was looking at me and she started getting very worried. There was something about the way I looked. So luckily we have a friend and a neighbour who's a GP, uh, Dr Katie Emil. And Emma asked her to come over and have a look at me. She didn't come in, but she handed Emma an oximeter. And Emma put it on my finger and said that it read as 56. So Dr. Katie said, is that the pulse? And Emma said, no, no, the the pulse is, I seem to remember it was something like 115 from memory. Um, And she said, uh, oh, right, 58 maybe. Anyway, either 56 or 58. Sorry, I haven't got the figures in front of me. But anyway, it was under 60. And so Katie said, you have to take Michael to hospital straight away. And so Emma and with our daughter in the back, Elsie, they drove me to A&E. And then I was put straight away into intensive care. As far as I remember, I don't really remember it very well, with a mask on my face. And I was in intensive care for a few days, but apparently my condition worsened. And so after, I think, between five and six days... Um, I remember lying in bed and a doctor standing over me saying, we need your permission for us to put you to sleep. It may have been you, Alan, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> it was a doctor who said, uh, a male doctor saying, uh, we need your permission. And I said, will I wake up? And the doctor said, you've got a 50-50 chance. And I said, oh, right. And if I don't sign? And he said, zero. I think he meant zero chance of being alive. So I thought, well, I better sign then. So I signed. And then that's it. Nothing happens that I know of. While you guys were doing lots of things, obviously, you know better than me. 
for, I gather, for about 40 days. You, I think, judging from the nurse's diary that was kept, um, that you started taking me off sedation probably round about day 35. I'm not quite sure. It's a bit difficult for me to get exactly. I've got the nurse's diary here, actually. Um, and um, then for the next 10 days or so, things are very, very fuzzy. That's all I can say. Uh, without anticipating any more. But that period, uh, I say in an induced coma, um, is just totally blank. Gosh, regardless of whether or not it was the COVID pandemic, oxygen levels of below 60% are worrying in any situation. It's good to hear that your friend and neighbour as a GP acted so quickly for you. Before you caught COVID, what was your impression of the disease? I mean, I assume you had heard about it in the news, but was it something you were particularly scared of at the time? Mm, I remember engaging with people on Twitter about it. And um, as always with illnesses, you know, people put around all sorts of hoodoo stories. And uh, people seem to sort of forget what how viruses are transmitted. I mean, we just, you know, sit near each other and sneeze and the virus flies through the air. It's not really that complicated, but people would start inventing all sorts of other things and, and a lot of arguments about masks, of course. Not that we could get them very easily at that point, but anyway. And then also floating in the air was this idea, and I was very, very shocked to see it coming from government scientists who started talking about herd immunity. So you can go back to the record, March the 13th, Three government scientists seemed to be acting in unison on March the 13th, 2020, suddenly started talking on Newsnight, the Today programme, somewhere else, uh, about how herd immunity was going to be the way out of this pandemic or this, this coronavirus problem. So I goodness knows what they thought, but I was I remember writing about it and being utterly shocked that this was in circulation. Um, and uh, I also had a rather strange and ironic conversation on the Today programme because they'd picked up from some of my tweets that I've, I heard in the air, if you like, this is while I was just becoming ill, that somehow or other it would be better if old people got ill than if young people got ill. And I found this utterly obnoxious, that there was a strain of eugenics in this, that somehow or other the idea that a 75-year-old's day is less valuable is of less worth than a 25 year olds um, and in fact I went on the Today programme on about March the 10th and there was a woman there who was about my age and she said oh well if Covid takes anyone you know I just hope it's me and not my grandson and I remember thinking what an extraordinary survival from pagan thought of the idea of illnesses and of course underscoring that is the idea of Mr Death you know the Grim Reaper in pagan European folklore, who comes knocking, you know, hello, I've come for you. And then you go, no, 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 don't take me, don't, or take me, don't take my child. You know, I mean, these various things in folk stories. And here in the 21st century were people circulating this stuff. And I saw it repeated many times. And I thought, how extraordinary that in a time when we've had, you know, vaccinations in this country, certainly since polio, which I remember very well as a kid, um, that people are still talking in these kind of very strange, superstitious ways. It's almost as if the science education is not out there to inform people about the nature of viruses, the nature of evolution, um, and in this case, the nature of death. I mean, I just was utterly bewildered by it. So there we are, and then I got it. Ha <laughs> ha. 
who's laughing now and, and then you got it um so michael you said that your gp neighbor came in obviously she was very concerned about your low saturations and then by the time a doctor was talking about putting you off to sleep you obviously got a real sense of the severity of the situation but in between those times how worried were you do you remember thinking this is a really bad situation i'm really not well no uh, to be absolutely honest i had a sense that i was just a bit ill i didn't even really know why i was there I mean, you've got to remember, my brain must have been oxygen de depleted anyway. So, goodness knows, you know, we know people get kind of hypoxia drunk. So, um, I think I, at the time, I was like thinking it was all a bit odd. And I was sitting in hospital being fed. In fact, I think one time I got up and went for a pee. And this caused quite a stir um because you know i was in intensive care I, I well i was on a ward i know i was in intensive care for a day or two then i was on a ward i think the nightingale and then i went back into intensive care so anyway at one point i got up for a pee and apparently this was breaking all the rules and they all got very worried about it and rang emma my wife um so i think i was probably in a state of thinking well if this is covid then you know it's quite easy to get on with i remember on one occasion saying to one of the nurses if we've all if this is a ward where we haven't all got covid aren't we infecting the other people and um i was met with a blank stare anyway it did concern me that somehow or other we were spreading it rather than getting rid of it but very early days i mean you're talking about the end of march 2020 beginning of april the very start of things wasn't it it's interesting to hear that you didn't seem to feel as unwell as your observation suggested. I mean, at the beginning, you mentioned how your oxygen levels were less than 60%. And usually when we see this, patients are so unwell, they're pretty much unconscious at this point. However, I think a lot of doctors will have a similar experience in that we were seeing patients with very low oxygen levels, almost, as you said, go about their normal day, do things like going to the toilet, which was extremely alarming for us to see. However, we knew that they were unwell and could become even more unwell, obviously from the number of people we were seeing being admitted to intensive care. And with those kind of observations, I imagine you must have been very regularly reviewed by lots and lots of doctors. Did they ever explicitly say or did they ever give the impression that you were very unwell? I mean, we know that you were admitted to intensive care. Did you feel like this process was well explained? Did you feel like you had a good understanding of what was going on at the time um at various times and it's quite hard for me to sort out the chronology here i did understand that bits of my body were in trouble so there was talk of liver and kidneys so presumably they'd done run tests on my liver and kidneys and so leaping ahead to something like day 45 i can remember a doctor several doctors coming by the side of my bed and saying to me, you know, you were very poorly. And they were repeating this to me. And I remember saying, or thinking, um, were they saying I was, I was going to die? They thought I was that bad. Is that what very poorly means? Was it a, is that a, a kind of code? And the way they said it, kind of nodding, that suggested to me that uh, they were, in fact, very worried. Um, they had been. And as I say, though Emma can't remember it, I remember a doctor mentioning 
kidneys and liver, at which point I can't be absolutely 100% certain. But myself, just personally, no, I don't remember being worried about anything. Um, and as I say, even when they said 50-50, I remember thinking, 50-50? Oh, that's quite good, isn't it? 50-50, not a bad... Um, that's not bad. I was sort of thinking, you know, toss of the coin. Um, so, again, whether that was the old hypoxia digging in or whether I was already on opiates, I have no idea. But I remember thinking... Uh, I remember actually thinking 50-50, not bad. And I also had a rather sad thought, which I will share with you. My son died of meningococcal septicemia, and one of the doctors explained that he wouldn't have known anything about it. He died in his sleep, and he wouldn't have known anything about it. And I remember having a, a mini thought just before you guys put me under that, well, if I went, I wouldn't know anything about it, so it wouldn't be painful. So that may seem to you utterly bewildering and odd, but I do have odd thoughts. Um, but I remember thinking, one, 50-50, not so bad, and the other that, um, well, at least when Eddie died, um, he didn't go through any pain. Um, he didn't know what was happening to him. Um, and so I just thought, well, that'll be like that for me then. So, you know, um, I didn't seem to mind at that moment. It didn't seem to bother me. Well, um, I'm glad that you got some comfort from that thought, at least. That must have been quite a frightening time for everyone around you as well. Um, you mentioned, Michael, that you have the diaries from the nurses that looked after you on intensive care. And in your book, you, you cover that period of time when you were um, asleep and not aware of things, uh, looking at the diaries of the nurses. Was there anything that you were surprised by in the diaries or anything in particular that stood out to you or that you're especially appreciative of? Um, there's the diary. Um, well, all of it and none of it. So let me explain. Uh, to start off with, I, I couldn't read it. I couldn't bring myself to read it. I was When I came home, so I'm now leaping forward well after, you know, after three months in hospital, you know, with three weeks in uh, rehabilitation and so on, I still didn't understand I'd been 40 days in an induced coma. I hadn't actually understood that. We'll come back to that as to why I didn't understand it, but I didn't. And so the the diary sat on the kitchen table and I just thought, well, I, I don't really want to read that. I did read the notes, the doctor's notes, and something or other stopped me reading it. So in that sense, none of it surprised me because I didn't read it. Now, when I did finally get to reading it, and I have read it in bits, and um, I have read all of it now, you'll be pleased to know, by 2022, um, I am amazed by all of it. I'm amazed by the physicality of it, by the fact that nurses who are doing eight-hour shifts, you know, are spending time, here we are, look, you know, writing in this notebook, keep going, you've got this, says Claire, you know, I'll show you the page you know and the idea that somebody's done eight hours on the 29th of april uh and she's a physio by the way she isn't even she's not an icu nurse or little comments michael started blinking his eyes moved both arms and legs he squeezed the doctor's hand to respond to her questions michael confirmed that he was uncomfortable <laughs> he was repositioned and given some pain relief 28th of April, um, you know, Lizzie, kiss, kiss, night nurse, you know, double pages there, look. And I, I am amazed and overwhelmed by all of it. I mean, 
first few times I really did start reading it, I just cried. I mean, I was just that overwhelmed by it because I can't come to terms with that level of care from strangers. I mean, that's part of my makeup, perhaps. But um, and then as individual things, I mean, just the lovely, chatty, jokey way of talking appreciating the fact that, um, as you mentioned indeed, that I wrote we're going on a bear hunt, that nurses are going off shift and going to read we're going on a bear hunt with their kiddies while this great lump is lying in bed, you know, and they don't know whether he's going to survive till the morning or not. And all that is very moving. And all these little exhortations, you know, keep going, you can do it. Um, I mean, it's wonderful because, I mean, I can't hear it and I can't read it. It's almost as if it's like sort of sympathetic magic, that if you sort of say to this person, keep going, that they will. But of course, it's very important because it puts them in the frame of mind that I am a human being. I'm not just a slab of meat. So in terms of me playing medic now, but um, a medical practitioner, that, you know, it's very easy to see people who are slightly cadaverous, put it that way, you know, people lying there with tubes in and out of them and hardly blinking. Uh, to just see them as basically a, a set of tubes in a, a bag of white skin. And, um, you know, the fact that we are human beings is very important because people are talking and singing and relating to that person. And as we know, uh, we're leaping ahead again, it was rather difficult to wake me up. Um, I obviously didn't want to, um, so we can come to that in a minute. But the whole human level of my treatment is... Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. So this is the most precious document I have, really. You know, that these people, I say these people, you know, the people, I, I know some of their names, Carmel and Claire and Wincy and so on. Um, they've tried so hard to keep me alive. It's, uh, it's wonderful. You know, they comment that my blood pressure was acting like a yo-yo. Well, I know that that was, um, well, there were two people, but one of them was Monique, uh, who I've met since, and Monique explaining to me they were very worried about my blood pressure because it kept plummeting, and so they took it upon themselves to keep shaking me, to get me, you know, keep my blood pressure going. You know, and I'm just thinking again, I mean, there you are, eight hours. I mean, I'm going to leap forward again to this outrageous comment made by a journalist, I won't mention her name, in the press just this last two, last two days. It says, nurses aren't angels, uh, plenty of them, um, you know, spend their time drinking tea. And I, I, I am so furious by this comment. I am so furious. And, you know, I've got in my hand. I hope they did have cups of tea. I really do. And, you know, but then meanwhile, I know that Monique, you know, sat there watching the blip blip machine. I don't know its name. Um, the blip blip machine. And as it went down... You know, as the blood pressure went down to whatever it went down to, below 80 or whatever it was, systolic, diastolic, whatever, went down. They went, whoa, we better shake him. You know, better give him a prod. And um, they kept me alive. You know, I mean, really, I, it's just incredible. So it's not just a matter of, you know, well, you know better than me. It's not a matter of just giving someone some medication or, for that matter, giving them enforced, race by, enforced rest by sticking a ventilator down their throat. It's also all these other things, you know, and apparently I got agitated several times, so they had to watch that I didn't knock out the tubes, uh, the trachea and the, um, the NG tube and so on. 
which I did manage to do, you'll be pleased to know. I did manage to knock it out at a later stage, got into, got into trouble for that. Um, that was when I was conscious. And um, so, yeah, I, it just a wonderful, wonderful document that I treasure as, you know, beyond, beyond measure, beyond measure. Hi, just a quick message from me. Thank you for listening so far. If you're not a member of your association, please consider joining today. We represent over 10,000 in East Sis in the UK and membership brings about a lot of benefits. From free online educational webinars to discounts on in-person conferences and also access to what is now the world's most highly rated anaesthetics journal, Anesthesia. So please head to www.anesthetist.org and check out how a membership to the association can help you in your career. I completely agree with your points on intensive care nurses as well as all the other healthcare professionals who are working on intensive care at the time. COVID was actually my first experience of working in intensive care um, and I remember being incredibly scared uh, during my first few days but it was actually seeing how supportive everyone was at probably one of the worst ever moments to be working in intensive care that really helped me get through it at the beginning so you know what I do agree with you I do hope that they do find the time in their day to be able to have a cup of tea you briefly mentioned the difficulties you experienced waking up appropriately after being sedated for such a long time on intensive care and also the agitation you experienced during your admission it's something you go into quite great detail about in your book we often find agitation quite difficult to manage in intensive care. You know, as you experience, you have to do things like put large mittens on patient hands to stop them pulling out important lines and tubes, as it sounds like you were trying to do at certain points. During these moments, was there anything the staff did which you found to be particularly helpful in calming your agitation? Or conversely, was there anything you found unhelpful? I think I needed repeatedly being told that I'd been in, now whatever phrase you want to use, induced coma or under sedation or whatever, and that I'd been asleep effectively or something, if that would have been good enough, for something like 40 days. I needed to know that and I don't think I understood it fully probably until maybe even as late as the end of August. So I came out, you know, if you think, um, end of March, add 40 days, no idea where I've been or I just, I think I just collapsed that time. So I didn't know why I was so weak. I think I just thought COVID had made me weak, that I'd been in that ward that I remembered, the Nightingale, and somehow or other, now I was in another ward. I didn't understand that it was now June and it was March. I don't think I even understood that. And the trouble is, I I know because I've seen a little bit of film of me talking to uh, Professor Hugh Montgomery from the film 2020, The Story of Us, I look very composmentis. He's saying to me, I'm even making a joke, he's saying to me, oh, Michael, you've got children. And I then say, apparently. So in my whatever, that would have been round about day 40, 41 or something, I'm making a joke. So I guess people thought that, that I knew what was going on or that you had already told me so there was nothing more to tell me. In fact, I needed telling many, many times and it wasn't really helped 
by an unfortunate episode because um, the only ward, the only beds that were available was in a geriatric ward. So I was in uh, Merrick. Now, the problem with being in a geriatric ward is that the nurses, I can't speak for the doctors, but the nurses, they're dealing with people, terminal patients. And the night nurses who came on had no idea why this bloke sitting, apparently sitting up in bed, feeding himself, just about by then, um, I'd been 10 days more in the intensive care after coming off the sedation. So, um, and so there was even a little bit of resentment. So I remember one of the night nurses saying, what are you in here for? And me saying, well, I don't know. And if you don't know and I don't know, well, we're then both in trouble, aren't we? And I got, an impre got the impression that there was a sort of slight resentment that somebody who wasn't terminal was taking up a bed. There was a sort of feeling that somewhere or other I was on some kind of joyride because I was in a little bit of an annex to one side. So the nights were actually quite difficult and even reached one point. I have informed the hospital of this. I put it through PAL or whatever it's called um, and had a chat with the trustees. So I, but I'll repeat it to you. Uh, was that one of the night nurses took my buzzer away. Now, as it happens, I was very, very worried about peeing myself or pooing myself. And it, it worried me and I, I sort of, you know, because I didn't have control of everything anyway. Um, and uh, I got really upset and rang home. I rang Emma. And so Emma then talked to the nurse and then this went round. You know, Michael rang home. Michael Rosen rang home. And, you know, the nurses are in trouble or something. They weren't in trouble. I wasn't going to issue a complaint or anything at that point. I just wanted the bloody buzzer so that if I needed a bedpan... I could have it quick because uh, I was worried. Um, so there was a bit of that going on and that added to my confusion that, you know, two physios came to my bed, two guys, I remember, two Liverpudlian guys, and said, we're going to get you up walking. And they got me out of the bed and I just collapsed. My legs just gave way. And they looked worried. And I thought, well, if they're worried, then I ought to be worried. And they said, oh, right. You can't stand up. You can't walk, they said. And I said, no, I know. So you see, from here upwards, I'm quite sort of coherent. It's all the rest of me. I was sort of confused and upset. And I thought, I remember thinking at that point, I'm never going to walk again. I remember looking at my legs and they've completely shrunk. Well, you know, uh, you come out of 40 days in activity. Uh, and they reminded me of my dad's legs when he was dying, you see. So I remember looking at these white spindly legs and thinking... Well, I'm never going to walk again. I, I didn't realise I'd been this ill. And I'm connecting it with COVID rather than intensive care. So I'm muddled as to what's causing what. So there we are. That was my 10 days or so in Merrick Ward were confused. And I didn't even know some of the time that I was actually confused. Um, I mean, Emma tried to sort of explain things to me. And I... I I don't think I understood because she was relaying things sort of secondhand. And she used the phrase intensive care. I think she guessed that I might understand what that is, but I didn't because she, she watches and has watched 24 hours in intensive care or whatever is on the telly. But I, by and large, hadn't. So she was very knowledgeable about intensive care, whereas I was virtually ignorant. So when she said it, I think she just assumed she that I knew that I was lying there with the ventilated you know ventilated intubated and that um i understood this 
it, it's not her fault. It's just I, I really didn't understand that till August, May or even September. As you say, it sounds like once you'd left intensive care, which for us as anaesthetists and intensivists is often the sort of end of the patient journey for us, that was just sort of the beginning of your recovery, um, not, a, not an ending in any meaningful sense. Yeah. And then you had a long recovery and intense physiotherapy. Um, and how did you stay motivated during your recovery? And is there anything that you think we as healthcare professionals and doctors can do to help with motivation and, and patient recovery? Well, I was very, very lucky uh, to go to St Pancras Rehab with fantastic physiotherapists and occupational therapists. And somehow or another, I picked up that whatever my state of my body, I had to own it. Now, everything in our education, no matter how hard teachers try, we sometimes, we nearly always end up with the idea that teachers teach and we learn. And somehow or other, the way, another Emma actually, Emma the physio and Ashma the occupational therapist, they somehow were able to pass on the idea that I've got to teach myself. They could give me things like throwing balloons or um, uh, hands behind, nose over toes, this sort of thing. But at the end, you know, you've got to do it. And I remember thinking there was a contrast between me taking on that attitude and one bloke who said one day, are you going to the gym? And I said, yeah, I was in the wheelchair at the time. And he said, I, I think I'm going to bunk off. And I remember thinking, this isn't school. When you bunk off from school, it's quite satisfying because it means like the teachers can't get at you. You don't necessarily think you're doing down your own education because you sort of think of education as this thing that's inflicted on you. But this education is about handing you the tools to make yourself better. And they kept doing this, you know, get on the exercise bike, um, you know, don't push this, don't do this, try this, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so I said to myself, I'm teaching myself, I, I think the phrase I, I used at one point was, I've got to learn how to own my own frailty. So I think if, if it helps physios and occupational therapists and doctors, is to remind people very gently that they're not at school. This is a different kind of learning, that they have to be the person in charge of their learning, that physios and occupational therapists and doctors can say, do this, try this, that's well done, jolly good. But actually, them saying well done is neither here nor there. You've got to say well done. Or you've got to say, I'm going to just try that a little bit more today. I'm going to do one more step. And it's ultimately, it's all down to you. Um, and that's quite hard to get your mind in that place. Luckily, or whatever it is, something in my makeup told me that's what I ought to do. And um, I quite enjoyed it. And um, yes, I did take the compliment that I was motivated from Emma the physio. Um, I was motivated to to walk. Um, I actually, several stages along the way, thought that I wouldn't. I thought that I was a wheelchair person, then I thought I was a stick person, until the physio came in and said, you're becoming very stick-reliant, Michael, which I thought was very funny. Um, anyway, uh, so I threw away my stick, which I'd called Sticky McStick Stick, to keep me going. Um, and, um, yeah, 
but I thought, you know, I, I'm never going to be able to climb a set, uh, you know, set of stairs. They got stairs there at St Pancras, and I wasn't. They said, you're not. No one goes home from here unless they can climb the stairs. I remember thinking, oh, I'm never going to do that. Anyway, I did. Um, so yes. So I can't quite explain how I motivated myself, other than that it involved putting myself in the position of seeing myself as the teacher of me. So you've touched upon a lot of the physical difficulties you faced during your prolonged recovery period. Upon being finally discharged home, as, as well as your physical issues, was there anything else you felt there was difficulty adjusting to after such a long hospital admission? I think um, the problem is that you've got a new body. So, you know, I'd gone along for 75 years with most of the things that people go through, you know, maturation and... Um, uh, I'd had a car accident, actually. Um, but, you know, you, you get to know your body, don't you? I mean, you know yours, I know mine even better, if you like, if I was a bad longer with it. Suddenly this thing happens and you really don't know your body. So this is the body that is in your brain. So this breaks down the mind-body distinction that we make in Western culture that is not really valid. But anyway, so you don't really now suddenly you don't know your body because nothing in it is the same my toes were numb my legs were wobbly uh, this eye doesn't work this ear doesn't work so I'm sort of constantly walking into things uh, I get quite a lot of joint and muscle pain for whatever reasons I've no idea um, and the way I hold myself is different and so all my self-image what other phrases you want self-body image it's all changed. Now, that's quite a challenge. Um, I guess some people, I don't know, after a car accident or something, maybe they just ride it and just go, oh, well, this is me. But I find myself constantly trying to adjust to the new body, remembering the old body. Um, and even talking about things, say my numb toes, which were done by presumably the capillaries bursting or something. Um, that I, I wake up in the morning and I think, oh yeah, that's right, because I've got numb toes. Well, it's now two and a half years I've had numb toes. You'd have thought I got used to it by now, but I'm still talking about them as if I've only just discovered it. Um, or, you know, I find myself, we've got some pictures on the wall and I cover up that eye and I go, no, it's the same. Well, this is me being uncomfortable with my new body. Um it helps me to talk about it like I'm talking about it to you now. But it's a, an odd position to be in. So we could call it mental, but of course I'm being holistic. It's the mind picture I have of my body. It sounds like you're describing a very um, transformative experience on how you look at yourself and, and your physicality and adjusting to a new reality. Without wanting to sound too trite, um, how has the experience of COVID and intensive care stay, um, how has that affected how you view life, your values, your outlook, or has it? Um, I think it's possibly helped to make me just more aware of the whole apparatus of illness, health, cure, NHS. You know, if you think of you know, every human body 
every human encounters illness and of course in the end mortality but you know when you're a, a fit young man and I'm not being sexist here that I'm referring to myself that you you can sort of put that to one side oh yeah I got a bit ill or I hurt myself on the football field or something and you just sort of push the mortality aspect or even the illness to one side um it's not there, if you like. It's not ever present in your mind. I guess when you have a real big whopper like this one, it becomes a preoccupation. Um, I don't know what it would have been like if I was 30 or 40. I do follow people on social media um, who, have, who are much younger with long COVID and things like that. And I can see it's been utterly traumatic for them because their body's been transformed. I mean, there's a little cluster you may know this better than me, around women marathon runners. There's a little cluster of long COVID cases around them and it's been utterly, utterly traumatic. You know, it's been, it was such a liberation for some of those women to be able to run, run marathons and be strong and powerful. And then suddenly they're reduced to this person who can scarcely walk down the street. And I can see from the way they're writing that that's been a tr total trauma for them. I suppose for me, it's not so much a trauma at that level as a sort of ever-present concern, put it that way. And um, I just have to try and be philosophical about it and say, well, you know, it could have been any number of things. And anyway, I am 76 and, you know, some, you know, I just yesterday sent a letter to my old, to an old acquaintance stroke friend from school and back came a letter from, um, his son saying well he died in April 2020 of Covid and um, I'm thinking well you know it was the same age the same class uh, lived in the same area uh, it was actually got the same name as Michael he was called and um, I'm still alive you know so uh, this sense I have that the the human body not that it's preordained I'm not in any way religious or fatalistic not that our run on earth is preordained but when it has run that is the run that we have so this is how I adjust myself to my son having died at nine, nearly 19 that was his run that was the best that he could do with his body his mind in the face of that particular uh, bacterium uh, meningitis bacterium uh, sorry um, meningitis bacterium that's that was what he could cope with up until then and he couldn't cope with that bit sort of thing or I'm using emotive language but that's how I deal with it and so in my case it looked very much as if I couldn't cope with it but with the great help of modern medicine I could so whereas my old friend Michael who I'd written to uh, he couldn't so that's how I sort of adjust myself to understanding it without it because I have no religious beliefs or, f or beliefs in fatalism or or paganism, yes. You mentioned quite a bit there about adjusting to life after COVID. And I think this is an important point to touch upon. You know, whether you were a patient, a healthcare professional, or a relative or close friend of someone who was badly affected by the disease, I think as a society, maybe we're still trying to process at least the mental effects the pandemic has had on us. I mean, definitely for me personally, I think I'm still trying to process exactly the effect it has had on me. Um, and I think it's important we do discuss our experiences to try and help with this. So, Mike, I'd really like to thank you for coming on to our podcast and giving such a detailed and personal account of your experience. 
I have one final question for you. I understand you have an upcoming book titled Getting Better, Life Lessons on Going Under, Getting Over It and Getting Through It. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about that? Right, so uh, after I'd written many different kinds of love, I talked over with the publishers the fact that there was ongoing stuff. I was, you know, that wasn't the end sort of thing. Um, and that also I'd tried to cope with other things in my life. Um, and she said, like what? And I said, well, uh, there was some, we're third generation. Well, I'm, I'm third generation uh, out of family that suffered from the Holocaust. Um, and I've noticed that different people in the family have behaved very differently towards that. Um, at one point, I had a period where I was quite paranoid. Um, another time, uh, well, I had the 12, year, 12 years of undiagnosed hypothyroidism, uh, which was a major crisis for me because I couldn't figure out what was going wrong with me. And then when I um, started taking thyroxine, in a funny sort of way, it was worse because then I could see back to these 13 years that 12, 13, whatever it was, that seemed wasted. And I felt quite bad about that and sort of tried to position myself in relation to it. Um, and then also the death of Eddie um, and then COVID. So the book is like a, a walk round different ways of getting better, trying to get over things. How do you do it? Who do you talk to? How do you how do you position yourself in relation to these things? Um, so it's like half memoir, half uh, sort of self appraisal uh, of trying to get better with one or two tips, if you like, of uh, things I've done to help myself get better, like going to evening classes or, um, you know, eating the right food or whatever. So some of it is sort of very basic and um, kind of uh, down to earth, you know, Mrs. Beaton's cookbookery. And then the next minute it's trying to deal with the sort of philosophy of health and recovery, uh, illness and recovery, I should say. Yes. So it's, it's a mixture of those things. Mixture. Sounds great. Can't wait to read it. Likewise, I'm really looking forward the to it. The last bit, by the way, you'll be pleased to know, is the last bit is called Raisins to be Cheerful. Uh, that's because I'm a, a raisin addict and with the slight poignancy of the fact that the speech and language therapist banned me from eating raisins because she said they'd get jammed in the tracheostomy scar. And I remember lying in bed in the uh, rehab hospital thinking... No raisins, no raisins. What How point? is life going to be possible? <laughs> I even tell children when I do when I do my shows that I'm called Michael Raisin. But anyway, the last two pages are called Raisins to be Cheerful. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be a really entertaining and thoughtful read. I'd just like to say one final big thank you, Michael, for coming on to our podcast and giving such a frank account of your experience. I think you've definitely given both Leila and myself and I guess as well as our listeners a lot to think about. It's been really useful to have a patient perspective. Thanks for having me, Alan, Leila. And finally, thank you for all of those who have tuned in and listened to this episode. If you haven't already, I'd really recommend reading Michael's book, Many Different Kinds of Love. Also, please consider listening to some of the other episodes of Coffee and a Gas if you haven't already. They're available on all major streaming platforms as well as on the Association of Anesthetists website. Meanwhile, stay tuned for more upcoming episodes. Hi, just one final message from me. The Association's annual trainee conference is taking place this year in Leeds on the 6th and 7th of July. 
It is the only trainee-centric anaesthetic conference in the UK. Everyone is invited to attend from medical students all the way to senior anaesthetists. There will be plenty of fantastic talks and workshops which will be helpful for your anaesthetic career. More information is available on the association website www.anaesthetist.org where you can also register interest for when tickets go on sale.